Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people who want to know more. We're your hosts, Emma Fabriquet and Jen Marcocci. For today's wrap-up, we're talking about the increasing acts of terror in Europe, what the US elections means for Iran, the pro-democratic protests in Thailand, and a retried trigai in Ethiopia's brewing civil war. Let's get into it. The past two weeks has found the world in a ball of stress, anxiety, and fear. While most of the world has been preoccupied, and rightly so, with the elections happening in the United States, with sighs of relief from the Democratic Party at their momentous win with Joe Biden, there have been other sources of fear around the globe, particularly Europe. In the last few weeks, there was the horrendous attack on a French school teacher in Paris, killed in broad daylight outside of the school he taught by a lone actor claimed under the Islamic State, which followed suit by three jihadist-motivated killings in Paris and Nice. Then we saw in Vienna when an armed assailant killed four innocent people claimed to be by the Islamic State. What do we know about the individual that caused the attack in Vienna? This particular individual in Vienna had been previously imprisoned and convicted on charges last year for terrorist intent as he had tried to travel to Syria to fight for the Islamic State. Although he had successfully been put through rehabilitation programs leading to his release, he still went on to commit violence against individuals under the following of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who has called for his followers to commit attacks when possible. What effect has this had on the wider community? So the issue with increasing exposure and attention on acts of terror committed under the claims of the Islamic State has bilaterally increased frustration, anger and willingness for violent actions by the far right, who promote a notion of otherness, an us-versus-them mentality, and thus threatens the multicultural nature of Europe itself, rejecting diversity, mutual respect, and understanding. With an increasing focus on radical and extremes of any religious group or movement, be it Islam, Christianity, Judaism, or even political movements, there is a decreasing tolerance by groups outside of these communities as their exposure to them have become highly generalized and labeled under negative connotations. For example, when we speak about the political parties in the United States, Democrats and Republicans are portrayed as completely opposing parties, to the point that people are severely judged based on their political standings. A supporter of the Republican Party is harshly criticized for their assumed political opinions and vice versa. The same is happening within the context of terrorism. Although research has shown that over the last decades, acts of terror have been majorly carried out under the claim of the Islamic State, It has also caused increasing hostility and support for far-right sentiments against Muslims, despite their complete separation and connection from the Islamic State. That's interesting. So what haven't we been hearing about? So although the threat of radical Islamic terrorism has been at the forefront of counterterrorism and intelligence for most nations, there has actually been a 320% increase over the last five years from the far-right within both Europe, the United States and Australia which has arguably received much less media attention than it should. There are many factors that have contributed to this increase, some being from the election of Donald Trump in 2016, some from the recent BLM movement, the readily access and limited control over social media, and so on. The ideas behind this movement is complex and relies heavily on conspiracies of fear, but essentially stems from a white superiority mentality. The point of this segment is to highlight that while it is vital for us to discuss world events and tragedies such as those that have happened in Europe, it is also vital to aim to understand why they are happening and question our own generalizations on how we portray them. You've spoken about the US election there. 
So now to move on to what a Biden presidency means for Iran. The effects from Joe Biden's election are certainly echoing around the world, but probably nowhere more than in Iran. Why is Iran so special? Many Iranians hoped for a better future following the signing of a nuclear accord between Iran and world powers in 2015. Yet, these were quashed some three years later when President Donald Trump unilaterally abandoned the landmark agreement. The Trump administration imposed waves of economic sanctions that blacklisted the entire Iranian financial sector as part of a maximum pressure campaign on Iran that led to soaring inflation and shortages of medicine as well as causing other economic issues. Hope for a positive future relationship between the two countries has been renewed as Biden has promised to change course but the past forward remains unclear and complicated. What do you mean by unclear and complicated? For one, Biden was vice president when the nuclear deal that is formally known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was struck and said the US will be joining the accord as a starting point for following on negotiations if Iran returns to compliance with it. Whilst Iran, on the other hand, has said the US must first return to law and international commitments before any further steps can be taken. European efforts failing to secure Iran the economic benefits it was promised under the deal, the Iranian government began to gradually scale back a number of its JCPOA commitments exactly one year after the US reneged on the accord in May 2018 and said it will return to full compliance with the deal after the US does the same. But more recently, last week actually, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif told CBS News Iran under no circumstances will renegotiate the terms of the JCPOA. Is quoted by saying, If we wanted to do that, we could have done it with President Trump four years ago, he said. So when would these negotiations pick up again? Well, because experts are saying both Iran and the US will proceed cautiously in the early months of a Biden presidency, along with the current Iranian president, Hassan Rouhani, due to leave office in early August 2021 and elections set for June 2021, both America and Iran may wait till the second half of next year to start discussion. The arrangement could entail Tehran halting or rolling back some aspects of its nuclear program in exchange for the US to permit Iran access to an international line of credit and export of approximately 500,000 barrels per day of crude oil legally. This is a massive change because the Trump administration aimed to actually choke Iran's oil export and it were actually successful in shrinking their exports due to economic sanctions they imposed. Also, because the JCPOA was a unilateral agreement, the European signatories are keen for the US administration to return to it. So it will be interesting to see what occurs with that. Now, while the elections were happening in a democratic sense. On the other side of the world, we had Thailand that is still fighting for democracy. Daily demonstrations have been going in the streets of Thailand since July, particularly outside Bangkok's Grand Palace, in an attempt to deliver letters pleading for pro-democratic reforms to the king. These demonstrations, however, have been met with hostility from the police, which has even led for the second time use of water cannons on demonstrators. But what are they protesting for? So this is a pro-democracy movement that has been largely led by students, calling for a complete reformation of the ongoing monarchy. They are essentially seeking the resignation of Mr. Prayuth, of Mr. Prayuth who they claim came to power unconstitu- unconstitutionally after he led the coup ousting the elected government in 2014, which was under military ruling rather than election. 
More so, the constitution that was put in place is deemed undemocratic and illegitimate by the protesters, who wish to see a reform of the monarchy. These demands have been controversial considering the long-standing and untouched ruling of the monarchy, who is known for imprisoning people up to 15 years for acting against the monarchy itself. It is important to note that this is the first time ever that the monarchy itself has been contested, and political scientists are unsure how to predict the outcome. So apart from an illegitimate coming of power, how has this turned into a complete and almost rejection of the monarchy? So there are several factors. Firstly, in the beginning of the year, the Thai court completely dissolved a political party that was well known for its opposition and criticism towards the establishment, bringing unrest in its undemocratic character for using silencing and abusive power. Then there's been the obvious effect of COVID-19, which severely damaged the nation's economic status with increasing unemployment and rapid dispersion of COVID cases, resulting in loss of life, overcrowded hospitals, and an evident lack of public service funding. This led to several protests and comparisons of the establishment to Voldemort from Harry Potter to using the signs of resistance from the Hunger Games. As a result, various leaders of the protests were arrested, only solidifying the sentiment of undemocratic procedures and a lack of freedom of speech. The core issue is that there is a mounting frustration that has led to a collective sentiment and urgency for action that if not responded to through negotiations and settlements, which the palace has shown no signs of interest, will most likely lead to violence. On the other hand, there is still huge support for the monarchy by many people. Thus, the demonstrations are not a united sentiment by all of its population, making it more difficult for the movement to mobilise a significant force against the established system. We'll be back in a moment. The Young Diplomat Society is running a foreign policy analysis competition on the US elections. Learn the tricks and trade of a foreign policy analyst in real time. The winner will be awarded a mentorship opportunity with Sydney US Consul General Sharon Hudson-Dean. But how does it work? You will be placed in the shoes of diplomats on foreign missions of various countries. In response to political events and crises, they prepare concise briefs with a specified time frame. For the 2020 US election foreign policy analysis competition, competitors will write briefings from the perspective of a foreign diplomat based in Washington DC following the results of the 2020 US elections. This format seeks to emulate the conditions competitors may face as a real-life policy analyst or diplomat. In order to simulate realism, we have imposed strict time limits for the preparation of competitor briefings. Do it solo or with a friend. Registration closes on the 25th of November, 11.59 AEST. Links are in the description to register and for more information. Talking about civil unrest and battles, we can move on to Eritrea, Trigra and Ethiopia's brewing civil war. Ethiopia's federal government has declared an unexpected war on Trigra, a region in the north of Ethiopia. Eritrea is the region which divides Trigra and the rest of Ethiopia. The stability in Trigra is being threatened. It's also known as one of the world's most strategic regions or better known as being a part of the Horn of Africa. So how do we get here? Ethiopia is one of Africa's most well-armed nations and the Tigra People's Liberation Front or TPLF, dominated the country's military and government before Abi took office in 2018. It has plenty of conflict experience from Ethiopia's year-long border war with Eritrea, next door to Tigris region, and the International Crisis Group estimates that TPLF's paramilitary force and local militar have some 250,000 troops. 
Ethiopia's governing coalition appointed Abiy Ahmed Alice Prime Minister in 2018 to help calm months of anti-government protests. He quickly won a Nobel Peace Prize for opening political space and curbing repressive measures in the country of some 110 million people and many ethnic groups. But the Tigra People's Liberation Front felt increasingly marginalized and withdrew from the governing coalition. In September, the Tigra region held an election in defiance of a decision by the federal government to postpone all polls due to COVID. And they saw it as a way for Arby to extend his power. The government called these local elections as illegal, then later moved to divert funding from the TPLF executives to the local government. This angered the regional leadership. The leader of the TPLF then warned that a bloody conflict could erupt. It's worth also noting that escalation is also occurring due to the mutual animosity between Eritrea's long-term ruler and the TPLF, which goes back decades. So what happened in Tigra? So two things have happened recently. Communications were cut in Ethiopia's heavily armed northern Tigra region and Abiy announced he had ordered troops to respond to an alleged deadly attack by Tigra forces on a military base there. Yet both sides have accused each other of initiating the fighting and both stepped up the pressure recently. And with communication still out, it is difficult to verify either side's account of events on the ground. And so what could happen now? People are warning that the conflict could spread to other parts of Ethiopia, where some regions have been calling for more autonomy and deadly ethnic violence has led to the federal government to restore measures, including arresting critics. A Western diplomat in the capital, Abbas Ababa, said the message from the Ethiopians is that if you talk about a dialogue, you equate the two parties. But this is a legitimate government and that's a renegade group, referencing TPLF. And TPLF said they have no interest in negotiating with the federal government unless they release detained leaders as a precondition to talks. Additionally, observers have urged the need for dialogue, but even the United States Institute of Peace said a dialogue would not go far whilst the country's prominent leaders are in prison. So it'll be interesting to see if they are able to come to an agreement there. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for listening to our bi-monthly news wrap-up. And make sure to check in for our upcoming Trailblazers and in-depth episodes. Bye!